Welcome to The Book Podcast, where we discuss books about the book, the Bible, with your hosts, Scott Moffitt, Gabriel Penfield, and Gary Karwaski. We go as deep as we can go, look as hard as we can look, but we only scratch the surface of the meaning of the book. We only scratch the surface of the meaning of the book. Hello, welcome to the 27th episode of the book. Today, we are joined by Dennis Rasker, who, along with Tom Siegel and Kurt Witzig, wrote an important book, which we will be discussing today. Um, Dennis is uh, a man who has just recently left a pastorate in Duluth, Minnesota, and moved to, I think it's Kathleen, Georgia. Is that correct, Dennis? Yeah, well, the, the church building we use is in Kathleen. It's okay. a suburb of Warner Robins, Georgia. Right. Uh, did you go through culture shock with that move from uh, the extreme north to the extreme yes, south? Yes, it's very different down here, though I like a lot of things, and I'm not missing shoveling snow this <laughs> winter. Well, we congratulate you on your new ministry, your new pastorate. And today we examine a controversial topic that seems to have divided the Free Grace family. Her family squabble. Ah, that's not really important. Well, welcome. And we'd like to remind you that uh, that Dennis is a preacher, a teacher, a, an educator, and he is a um, juggernaut in his own right. And an author. And an author. Uh, and the book we look at today is, you guys got your copy? Should Christians Fear Outer darkness yeah mine is here on the kindle <laughs> thank you by the way for sending me a copy of it appreciate it so i always begin with this question dennis if you remember from last time why did you write this book and why did you write it at this time yeah that's a great question um i would say when we chose to write the book it's because we kept hearing what we believed was a very aberrant view of scripture relative to the issue of punitive damages at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, it is our belief that salvation is by grace alone Amen. through faith alone in Christ alone, that you live the Christian life by grace, and one day you will be glorified by grace. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you do give an account of your post-justification life relative to your sanctification and service for Christ. But we don't believe that Christians need to fear punitive damages, as it were, at the judgment seat of Christ. And as a result, this was bothersome to us because we believe that it not only was contrary to Scripture, not only misunderstood the judgment seat of Christ, but reflected a misunderstanding of Christian living by grace as well. Mm -hmm. And that is why this book, though it's addressing should Christians fear out of darkness, has in some ways a lot more to say about the grace of God relative to the Christian life and even glorification than it even does the issue of outer darkness. So it covers a wider span than just oh, the yeah. outer darkness issue. It covers, we're going to talk about it, the wrath of God and how that relates to the believer. Plus also, as you've already stated, just the grace of God and how that impacts the life of the believer. So, Gary, and you we'll wanna, get, and we'll get to overcomers. Next? We'll get to overcomers. Yeah, we all will. Believers, overcomers. That's a very, very good one that was taken care of toward the end of the book. So there, so this, uh, I think outsiders from the free grace family look at the free grace family as a unit. They see it as just one, and, and usually, and typically, they are opposed to our beliefs, our belief system, and they just see us as one. But as we all know, the Grace family is not quite exactly an altogether family. There's disagreement taking place among members of the Free Grace family, and this issue of outer darkness is one of them. And that's one of the one we want to. I think spend a fair amount of time in the early part of this podcast. How does that outer darkness fit into the division among the free grace family? Mm. Well, I would say, you know, in quote reform circles, 
um, while there is a certain amount of continuity, there's also a lot of disunity, you know. So it's not unique to us, obviously. And mm-hmm. times good Bible teachers disagree on interpretations of Scripture. Um, but what we're dealing with here is something beyond interpretation. We're dealing with some doctrinal issues that are of great importance. You know, when it came to writing the book on the uh, gospel of the Christ, Tom Stiegel addressed that issue because of the crossless gospel issue. Um, the book I wrote, the book we wrote on Outer Darkness was written because, again, we kept hearing these views and like nobody was kind of blowing the whistle or addressing it. So we felt like, well, we have strong convictions and studied convictions about this. Let's go ahead and do this and address this. And maybe it'll be of some help to someone out there who's addressing the issue. Mm-hmm. Cause we didn't know of any other books written quite like that. You know, my book on shall never perish forever on eternal security, I think met a need as well. Uh, Andy Wood's book recently published by Grace Gospel Press on the coming kingdom, Mm -hmm. I think met a need. And so a number of the books from Grace Gospel Press are there to meet a need, fill a gap, address an issue that needed to be addressed. And so, Gary, you know, even though it's in the free grace camp, the bottom line to us isn't the camp. It's what does the Bible say? You know, and uh, we have to go back to thus saith the Lord. And so. Even though, in a sense, it was among believers that, in many cases, we would agree with on certain other things, we certainly did not agree on this. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at the front of the book, right? I got the Kindle version, not the not the paper version. But um, you look at it, and it was like the endorsements, right? And then you look at uh, one of Sam Hoyt's endorsement. Um, it argue, it argues that carnal Christians will not experience punitive judgments at the bema seat, as your book explains. Um, he's, but he goes a little bit further and states that it's false teaching. If you do teach that, um, is a difference of opinion on what scripture states truly false teaching. So like, if you would believe that somebody faces wrath at the judgment seat of Christ, is that false teaching or is that going a bit too far? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's false teaching. (laughs) Yeah. And I um, unashamedly say that in the book. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. well, you can't say it's true teaching. So if it's not true, it's got to be false teaching. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not to suggest that everything that author teaches is false. You know, it's just that he's um, a Bible teacher who I think is teaching falsely or a false teaching on this issue, yeah. per se. You know, it's kind of interesting when it comes to that issue. You know, Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2 concerning the truth of error, saying the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's every reason to think Hymenaeus and Philetus were probably believers. Mm-hmm. In fact, their church discipline, one of them in First Timothy 1, you know, and so even true Bible teachers, I mean, truly saved people can teach falsely, mm-hmm. you know, on certain doctrine. And so, again, even though it's a family issue, it's a serious issue. Hmm. Going back to the endorsements, um, George Gunn and Andy Woods both state that this false teaching is a result of the co-mixing of the law and grace. And I really appreciated what Andy had to say here. Woods states that it's a confusion of what Jesus taught in the gospel to Israel, which this I find is a major problem within the evangelical camp, because it confuses what the apostles later taught to the church in the epistles. Further, Wood argues that the case for punitive damages is developed primarily from pre-age, pre-church age parables. Yep. So this continues to blur the distinction that is between Israel and the church. Do you think outer darkness proponents are building their theology on the wrong set of scriptures? And isn't this really a problem of a misinterpretation of the Gospels? Yeah, good question, Scott. Um, I would say this, you know, there are people who I would say are generally dispensational, mm-hmm. but they're not always specifically dispensational. Mm-hmm. Um, they would distinguish some things between law and grace in Israel and the church, but I think the true test is the Gospels and how you understand that. It's my understanding, and that's why I devote a whole chapter to the context of Matthew, mm-hmm. because all the references to wailing and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness are in Matthew with the exclusion of one. 
And in doing so, I take this whole chapter to develop this whole context and flow of Matthew, because in Matthew, in the early chapters, until the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the kingdom is being offered to Israel and is at hand. It, and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was a hard heart in conclusion by the religious teachers of Israel in which they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, claimed he was a demon-possessed miracle worker after the power of Beelzebub, and as a result, that the kingdom offer was taken off the table mm. to be resumed at a later time because God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled when Christ returns again. Thus, mm. the gospel of the kingdom will pre be preached again in the tribulation period to come, according to Matthew 24. But the point I'm after is they take Matthew, which only has one reference to the church, Matthew 16, 18, I will build yep. my church, unless you understand the Matthew 18 church discipline passage to being church, and I don't. I don't either. I, I, I used to, but more and more, I just think, man, I, I can't. That's talking about an ecclesia, but not right. the church right. per se. So Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church. There's no reference to the rapture. I don't believe the rapture is in Matthew 24 and 25, nope. as some others do. Nope. So forth. And so how in the world would you take all these passages on wailing and gnashing of teeth out of darkness and slap them on the back of church age believers at the Bema seat when that isn't the context at all? of Matthew. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I liked your, uh, all your P words for your, for your outline for the book of Matthew. I thought, here's a good preacher. Every section began with the letter P. Yeah. I, I think that. I got that from Ryrie. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, stole it. he stole it. He stole it. I think I gave him credit somewhere, but it must've been in the small print. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we got our, our darkness uh, people who believe that, Believers who are carnal, disobedient Christians should fear the wrath of God at the Bema seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, with certain consequences. And there are a number of consequences. And maybe at this point in time, um, we might want to know, is there a distinction between the wrath of God and the wrath of man? Because uh, I think there's a confusion of the two. Hmm. Yeah, well, there's no question that the wrath of God is his judicial response to unbelievers. Mm. Our John 3.36, he that believes in him is, you know, has everlasting life. He who does not believe um, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Clearly in reference to an unbeliever. See, one of the major problems that caused a severe response on my part to the punitive damages view is that I think it it's an insult and an assault to the propitiatory work of Jesus. There you Christ. go. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross paid for our sins, lock, stock, and barrel, past, present, and future. And God has been satisfied with that payment. So why would there need to be a double payment? Mm -hmm. Double jeopardy. You know, at yeah, the yeah. second payment being done at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, furthermore, I would go so far as to say this, Gary. I don't believe that the wrath of God is upon the believer in time, let alone at the judgment seat. Yeah. And that's why I think there's a failure to distinguish between divine discipline and the wrath of God. Yeah. The wrath of God um, is divine discipline is done out of love for our good. And if responded to benefits us, the wrath of God is not done for the unbeliever's good. It is not a response of a loving father to a child. It is the response of a just judge mm -hmm. in a courtroom context. And that is why you must distinguish the two. And, and I think, again, this blurs that line. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's not the same as... Uh, condemnation. Furthermore, I would add this. If, if indeed discipline is designed to benefit us, and we're at the judgment seat of Christ, and we're being supposedly punished for our sins, how can we be benefited by that if we're already in a glorified body without a sin nature? There you go. What benefit would it be to us personally? Yeah. And so I see the judgment seat of Christ as a place where we do give an evaluation. 
I see in 1 John 2.28, abide in him that when he appears, you may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming, that there can be a loss of reward. There could be a sense of shame that I had opportunity I blew. But punishment? No, that's been taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Yeah, what about, um, take a look at like Ananias and Sapphira, right? Looking at their situation from what, as far as I can tell, they're saved part of the church, right? Born again, mm-hmm. but they were killed, right? The Holy Spirit um, struck them. Yeah. Would, would yeah, you maximum that discipline? divine discipline, yeah. Okay. That's true with 1 Corinthians chapter 11 too. For this cause, many of you are sick and weak and many sleep. Mm. Sleep is only a term for the physical death of a believer in the New Testament there. And so I would say that it's true that it that was a discipline for their good. You know what? It took them right to heaven. There you go. <laughs> hey, that was their good. You know, I mean, yep. yeah, God says, you know, you'll do more good for me in heaven than on earth coming home right now. You know, and so with Ananias and Sapphira, I do believe they were believers. Mm. Um, see, I take the view that Simon was a believer as well there in Acts 8. I don't see any reason why he wasn't. And so, um, and that God does discipline his children sometimes to the point of bringing them home to heaven prematurely, if you want to use that word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for the kingdom, we're, we're talking about Matthew, right? Uh, with the kingdom. Uh, was the promise of the kingdom of God made exclusively to the Jew? And if not, then what is the difference between a Jew entering in the kingdom and a Christian entering into the kingdom? Like, cause I know in the future, right? Obviously the kingdom is meant specifically for Israel, but um, are we grafted into that? Like what's the difference between basically a Jew entering the kingdom and a Christian entering the kingdom? What do you think about that? Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. Well, let me just say this, you know, it's my understanding that after the fall, we have in Genesis three fifteen the promise that God was going to use the seed of the woman to crush the head of Satan. Now, I see that as a promise of salvation, but I see it beyond personal salvation to the salvation of the planet. You know, and as a result, that's where the kingdom of God actually is all going to come in. Because while it's truly Jewish in nature, by way of its center, it goes beyond the Jews into Jesus Christ reclaiming the whole planet, as it were, for God. Mm. And as a result, even in in, um, Revelation chapter 21, you have the nations or the Gentiles Mm. who are living outside of the city coming into the city to worship. Mm -hmm. So you got Gentiles there. You got church age believers there who I believe live in the New Jerusalem, not um, coexisting with the Jews saved Jews, but not, uh, there's still being a line of demarcation between the two, because I do believe that the church will be the church throughout all eternity, Mm -hmm. and so forth. And so I see again that the kingdom is specifically offered to the Jews, but even in the Old Testament, there were promises about Gentile salvation by the prophets and so forth. And so I, I don't see them as being I see them as being distinct, but not mutually exclusive. Okay. All right, good. Um, you're answering some of our questions further on down our questions that we have already written out, which oh, is you, fine. Did you know I was a prophet in a nonprofit organization? Ah, yeah, there you go. So uh, this, I want to go back to the, just what is the outer darkness? Sometimes it's called the Protestant purgatory. I think that's kind of an interesting term. But what is it? Um, and I think there's a number of views of just what this Protestant purgatory or this outer darkness is all about. Uh, it might be good for us to get to that point at this time. And then we want to go back and talk a little bit about hermeneutics, I think. Sure, yeah. Well, I do think I'll give you, let's just look at some of the passages related to it. Matthew 8 is the first one. Matthew chapter 8. And we have the case of the centurion who was a gentile by the way you mean you want to look at the bible answer this <laughs> yes what a what a novel idea oh my right? goodness where does it come to <laughs> yeah verse five now when jesus had entered capernaum a centurion came to him pleading with him saying lord my servant is lying at home paralyzed dreadfully tormented 
Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word. My servant will be healed. For I'm also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now, first of all, that was a slap in the face because this was a Gentile, you know, among Jews. And then he says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Now, to sit down at the feast, as it were, the banquet feast, the marriage feast, is to have entrance into and participation in the kingdom, which will be true of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom, in this context, the opposite of these these um, Gentiles, these are Jews, sons of the kingdom, the ones that have been promised the kingdom, will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's our first reference to it here in the scriptures, uh, at least in chronological order. And in doing so, we've got Jews, unsaved Jews, contrasted with saved Gentiles and saved Jews. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would fit into that saved Jews category, though Abraham was a Gentile, you know. And so they're going to enjoy the kingdom, but the sons of the kingdom, those who have been promised the kingdom, the Jews, Jewish people, are going to be cast out into outer darkness. Cast out is clearly a reference to the fact that they will not participate in, enjoy, enter into the kingdom. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I, we point out in the lexical section of the book that weeping and gnashing of teeth, while Dillo and others try to downplay that to say serious regret only, it goes beyond that to gnashing of teeth always is a response of someone who is just bitter and angry and so forth and so forth, not a repentant attitude per se. It's just the opposite. So that's our first reference to outer darkness. Now, what's clarified is if you go to Matthew 13, you can see it even clearer. There's some development of it. In Matthew 13, and we have the case of the parable of the tares. Um, verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus Christ. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. So we see sons of the kingdom used again here, okay? But there's a qualifier as we go on. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it'll be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Now, again, furnace of fire, I believe, would be understood in reference to hell. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Similar result. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He has ears to hear, let him hear. So notice the righteous is in contrast to those who are cast into the furnace of fire. By righteous, I understand that to mean believers. Not a certain kind of believer. You know, and, and Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, Except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's always interesting, and I point this out in the book, is when you understand chronologically the four Gospels, you know that Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3 precedes the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus made it very clear to Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
We know that he did not understand what that meant. And Jesus even chided him by saying, you are the teacher in Israel and you don't know these things. Well, the way we're born again, as we can see through John 3, is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, you receive eternal life. You receive salvation. You are born again. So the disciples would have that understanding going into the Sermon on the Mount. You know, and so I say that because a lot of Bible teachers take, except your righteousness exceeded as scribes and Pharisees, namely how you live. Yeah. Well, that isn't true. I mean, you're not ever entered into because of how you live. It's because Jesus said, except you born again, you cannot enter or see the kingdom of God. It's through being born again and getting a righteousness that's imputed to your account by God at the point of justification. Can I push back here a little bit? Yep, go ahead. Um, um, thinking through a hermeneutical understanding of the book of Matthew versus um, the epistles, and the audiences are different. Yes. And so Jesus is speaking to hear people under the law. There's He is death, burial, and resurrection has not taken place yet. So when he's talking about this cast into outer darkness, I think the first hermeneutical error that some of these people make is they try to apply what's written to a Jew under the law to those who are in the church under grace. Now, we know everyone's saved by the same manner, by believing in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ's substitutionary death with a little bit more, a lot, I should say, a lot more information post-cross, post-into the epistles. But isn't this, don't, don't they make the interpretational error of, of reading back into the Gospels, what really is, I, like you mentioned before, um, Gentiles did get saved in the Old Testament, they, 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 but they came through Israel. It wasn't like there was another method of, of um, salvation. That, that came, or not, another method of salvation, but another viewpoint of it, which came through grace that came later. So how do you, how do you understand those, that, that like Jesus, when he died, it was, he is the King of the Jews. And, and so how does all that relate to our understanding of these Matthew passages? Well, I think you make a good point, Scott, you know, reformed theology is very guilty of reading back into the Bible. They take stuff from the epistles and read them back, and you can't do that. You have to work your way through contextually and chronologically. And so I understand, again, in fact, you know, so this surprises people sometimes, but, you know, when you look at the verses regarding the death of Christ in the Old Testament, Isaiah is, 53. It, is it taught? Yes. Absolutely. Is it predictive? Absolutely. Give me five of them. Well, you have Psalm 2 and Isaiah 53. Okay, about his death, Psalm 22, mm -hmm. Isaiah 53. Okay, give me three more. I gave you two, and I'll see up, up to the other guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned one, uh, Genesis 3.15. Yeah. Proto-Evangelum. Yeah. Yep. Daniel Gary? 9. The Messiah's going to be cut off. Yes, right? Daniel 9. That's right. Yep. Very good. How about Zechariah 12.10? Go look on him whom you have pierced. Mm. Right, that's true. Yeah. Okay. But Gary not a is scary yeah. seventy. You'll have to excuse him. <laughs> you took huh? Isaiah fifty-three. What else can I use? <laughs> yeah. Well, now, now the point I'm making is simply the fact that it's all. Now over let's the place. let's go the other route. So, mm -hmm. how many verses can you give me from the Old Testament on personal justification? We're asking the questions here, not you. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I sent you the questions. I sent you the questions beforehand. You didn't do that with these. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the reason I'm raising this issue is uh -huh. to show something, though. See, when it comes to personal justification, how many verses do you find in the Old Testament on it? Genesis fifteen six. Like, way to go! That's that's the home run. Abraham. Yeah. Abraham. You know, you're learning something at Bible Institute there. That's really good. That's something. So, yeah. Uh, that's one, right? Okay, give me give me some more on personal justification. Habakkuk <laughs> um, chapter two, verse four, the just shall live by faith. Oh, I was just reading that for my personal devotions this morning. Yes. <laughs> Why didn't you Very know good. it? <laughs> good. 
And both of them are quoted in the New Testament. Yes. Yeah, well, just um, look at what Paul shall live by faith in, in Galatians. Just think about what he quotes in Romans. You right. got Habakkuk 2 4, Genesis 15 6, Psalm 32 1 in Romans 4 is found as well. How about Galatians, where he quotes the just shall live by faith? Yeah, that's yep. repeating Habakkuk again. Um, but the whole oh, point I'm true. after is there aren't many. No, there's not. Because the thrust of the Old Testament has to deal more with national salvation mm. or, in and many cases, physical deliverance. Physical deliverance from enemies. And But yes. justification was clear. I mean, Paul, I mean, um, David said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. forever. He obviously had an understanding. Um, you might go to Luke. I think it's Isaiah 44, 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. But there are not many verses on that. And so that's why when Jesus comes on the scene, you know, and he's telling people you must be born again. Mm -hmm. It's not that they didn't understand there needed to be righteousness to enter the kingdom. Mm. But this whole idea of personal justification is certainly highlighted in a way that it wasn't before. In addition to that, how many verses in the Old Testament do you have on hell? None. Very few. Yeah, not not yeah. any. Jesus yeah, talks well, about yeah, hell some, more than some anybody would say else. None. I, others would say Isaiah 14, and there's a few yeah. places. But the whole point I'm after is that, again, that would tie in that whole issue of individual justification again. So when mm -hmm. Jesus comes on the scene and starts talking about hellfire and being cast into hellfire, this was like a whole new <laughs> understanding for these folks to be thinking in those kind of terms. But he makes it very clear, furnace of fire here, wailing, gnashing of teeth, outer darkness. But that was also because they never they never thought that they would ever face that question. They already thought, hey, I'm a I'm a, a, a descendant of Abraham. I'm in. I got no problem here. It's straight to heaven. I was just listening in my earbuds last night to John 8. Mm -hmm. And what is the gay they keep saying? We're our father is Abraham, right? And Jesus says, "No, your father is the devil." Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're not going back far enough chronologically. Yeah. Oh, he got in trouble for that one. Before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, they picked up stones to stone him. So how to make friends and influence people? Yeah. All right, <laughs> let's. But back to the issue here. In every mm -hmm. case, in Matthew eight thirteen, mm -hmm. uh, twenty two, twenty four, Luke twelve, so forth. Every one of those cases, number one, has nothing to do with the church. Number two, yes. I believe, has nothing to do with believers. Number three is talking about outer darkness that involves being outside of the kingdom. See, the kingdom was viewed as a place of light. Mm -hmm. So to be cast into outer darkness is to be excluded be the from the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And you see, as... We bring out in our book, there's there's four views on this outer darkness. One is the you're excluded from the kingdom view as a believer. <laughs> That's the extreme view. The second view is you're in the kingdom, but you live in the suburbs. You know, I mean, that's the Chuck Missler view. And they aren't very nice either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you've got the figurative view, but it's still punitive, which is the Zane Hodges, Bob Wilkin, a lot of those guys view. And then there's the classical grace view, which is the Chafer, Ryrie, Walford view, the view that we hold as well. Mm. So that see it as we will have no part. That is, those are passages for unbelievers. That has nothing to do with the church. Mm -hmm. So this it's whole understanding. In the judgment seat of Christ. So this whole understanding of the punitive nature of the judgment seat has to do with the weeping and gnashing. There's some kind of remorse or even some kind of um, injury done to you through this process at the judgment seat where you're judged not on just rewards, but on your past failures in this life that you need to be punished for. Um, almost like what do the Catholics believe in? Purgatory. You get, well, you that's work why it it's off. funny because I, I started to call this a Protestant purgatory and Jody Dillow in his book then later says, I think we need to take some serious thought about this, about that, you know, using that. And it's, and he didn't say it in a negative way. Because mm -hmm. unfortunately, Jody 
believes in a form of Protestant purgatory. And remember, I was raised Roman Catholic. Right. I so mean, was Gary. I, I, I was taught shoplifting in fourth grade and I lost my chances for heaven because that was a mortal said shot by the age of nine or whatever, you know. Mm. And and so all of those things are very serious to me, unfortunately, because of my religious background. I right. especially probably react a little more. I hope somebody's writing that down because mm. we're keeping notes. <laughs> all right. So we've already talked about uh the fact that if the if this is a punitive response at the bema seat, it sort of maligns Christ's sacrifice, or it maligns yes. the propitious work of Christ. It maligns the grace of God, which you sp- you say you spend a lot of time um, on this book uh, in in the book on that. Um, let's 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 identify just then what is the bema seat? How is it defined? Who are the participants? Um, and how do you respond to to those who accuse free grace believers who look at the bema as a place of rewards only, and they say it's a toothless bema? <laughs> yeah, well, I would say a few things. Um, let's, if you want to go to First Corinthians three, it'd be best yeah. if I just follow scripture here. <laughs> In First Corinthians three, we have a example along with Second Corinthians five and other places, in reference to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I Unlike Reformed people, I distinguish the great white throne versus the judgment seat of Christ. Mm. The great white throne is clearly in Revelation 20, a case of condemnation for the unsaved whose names are not written in the book of life. Uh, The judgment seat of Christ is for believers, and in particular, church-age believers. Now, I do believe, based on Luke 14, 14, that whenever you can find the resurrection of a people group, you will find the reward issue. The judgment. Mm. And so I believe Old Testament saints, for example, will be rewarded when they're resurrected to enter the kingdom. So rewards and resurrections always go together, Luke 14, 14. So in the the judgment seat of Christ happens with the resurrection rapture event of 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So on the heels of that come the judgment seat of Christ. In verse um, chapter 3, verse 11, for no so other foundation takes... can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So every believer has that foundation. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, permanent materials, wood, hay, straw, perishable materials, each one's work will become clear for the day. And I would understand the day is just a shortened version of the day of Christ, which deals with his return. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort or quality it is, whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, wood, or stubble Mm -hmm. or straw. If anyone's work which he has built on it, the foundation endures, he will receive a reward. Notice this isn't a gift, it's a reward. Salvation is a gift. Justification is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. This is a reward for faithful believers who built on that sound foundation, the gold, silver, precious stones. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians, I think he's talking about living your life and building your ministry, if you want to call it that way, on divine wisdom versus human wisdom, which is the context of chapters 1 and 2 and so forth. Uh, not only built on divine wisdom, but obviously empowered by the Holy Spirit and so forth, so forth. So, so they receive a reward. And by the way, I believe in singular rewards, not plural, which is a little different. If you look up the word for reward, you will always see it singular. Now, but that doesn't mean I don't believe there's degrees of reward within that reward. But either you get a reward or you don't. And either in that reward, there may be various degrees. That's why Second John says uh, you need to beware so that you get a full reward. Full is a degree word, and yet reward is still singular. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Loss of what? Well, in the context, a reward. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire, which is eternal security. So I understand it. It's a place where you get reward. 
Um, I'll give you uh, that reward can consist of various things. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, it can involve praise and honor and glory. And I used to think at one time that was praise and honor and glory to the Lord. I'm convinced from context it's praise and glory and honor from the Lord to you. Like, well done, thou good and faithful servant in Matthew 25 would be an illustration of that. Would that be the righteous uh, secondly, robes? Would that be the righteous robes we wear in Revelation? Yeah, there, there, there can be a dimension of that. There is a robe that all believers wear that's of righteousness. But over and above that, it's the righteous works of the saints in Revelation 19. So that comes into play as well. Uh, furthermore, it can involve, I believe, places of service, even in the kingdom in the future as well. Though I distinguish Israel and the church, even in the kingdom age, I believe all believers are overcomers. We are part of the winning team, if you want to call it that, the kingly team. We're, and as a result, we have different uh, places of service within that. And, you know, I was thinking um, about your question about the overcomer and talking about it. I would be glad to mention it today. But, you know, frankly, Tom Stiegel's the guy who wrote yeah. Overcomers. He's the guy you want to talk to. He has an acute understanding of that beyond me. Um, but I believe all believers are overcomers because we're in Christ. You know, um, and so so going back to rewards. Either you get a reward or you don't. When you get a reward, it can be praise and honor and glory. It could be particular opportunities to serve Jesus Christ in the future. It'll be Christ's way of saying, thank you for letting you, um, letting me use you to bring honor and glory to me by my grace in your post-justification life. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the song, it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus Christ. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And it will be, you know, I mean, the best decision I ever made in my life by grace was to trust in Christ. The second best decision I made is when I decided to start to live for him, you know, who died for me. And I didn't do that, by the way, out of fear or punishment. Perfect love casts out fear. And the only perfect love I know is the love of Calvary. Yep. And that's what motivates me. And you see, one of the real problems, guys, with this whole view is now the fear of punishment becomes the motivation, yep. not the love of Christ that motivates me. You wrote a book once on the three tenses of salvation, which we interviewed you about a few months ago or years ago. And the theory here that's being put forth by these advocates is that the punishment you will receive is for sins committed post-salvation or post-justification in your experience. So you're a Christian and you do bad things, you know, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. And it's at this judgment seat, the Bema seat, that you will receive the um, due penalty for what you've done, right? How does that conflict with our position in Christ that we've been saved from our sins in the past, the present, and the future, from the penalty of those sins? Um, so can you speak to that? Uh, yeah, two, well, verse, two verses I think of. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, now there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Seems to seems to me that that is pretty straightforward and it contradicts it. Yeah, see, one of the things about forgiveness that I don't, I think people struggle with understanding forgiveness. And, and I'd like to make a distinction between what I call judicial forgiveness versus parental or fellowship forgiveness. And it's an important distinction to understand. You see, at the moment of faith in Christ, in the law courts of heaven, you are declared righteous. That's a justification. As part of that declaration, you're forgiven all sins, past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. Never to be brought up again. Legally forgiven, legally justified. Okay. Now, let's imagine for a moment, and this is the illustration I used last, last Sunday preaching. Imagine for a moment that your dad was the judge and you were found guilty. And, and he said, you know what? He takes off his robes and he comes and says, I'll pay your fine. And you say, I'll accept that. And so you walk out of the courtroom totally forgiven of the debt. That's a judicial declaration. It has nothing to do with how you behave later. It happened in the courtroom, it's settled, it's done. So now in the car, you're on your way home 
with the, with your dad, the judge, but he's no longer the judge. He's the dad. And you get into an argument. This has probably ha never happened with Gabe, but you know what it is. And as never. a result, um, you start to disagree. Now, does that mean he's no longer your dad? Does that mean that the decision made in the courtroom doesn't stick or changes? No. It means that that legal declaration has occurred, but now your fellowship is breaking down hmm. between dad and son. Well, at the point of salvation, justification, we're declared righteous, we're forgiven all sins, past, present, and future, Colossians 2.13. On the other hand, in our fellowship with the Lord, when we sin, we need to have that addressed. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Context of that verse is fellowship. That's why Jesus said, once you've been bathed, you don't need another bath. You just need your feet washed. Mm -hmm. He moves from luo to nipto as in making that distinction between those two aspects of forgiveness. And so that's how I would understand that as well. And so... Sins in regarding the believer's life after he's saved are dealt with in time by virtue of divine discipline or you reap what you sow or things like that. But they will never be the issue at the judgment seat of Christ um, because, again, of the propitiatory work of Christ. There is no value in being, quote, punished. It's already been paid for. There's no value in being, quote, disciplined. Even it's not for our good. It truly is a reward issue per se, and that's what I think the scriptures teach about it. Yep. I'm gonna quickly bring up a verse um often used to kind of defend against maybe like the pre-wrath position. Uh first Thessalonians five nine, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can that be used to defend against the idea of um outer darkness or do you think it's a different context have you ever used that verse what do you think about that yeah that's a great see i think first of all uh, in a general sense that that is true across the board mm -hmm. you're right gabe uh in a particular context there would be those who would argue that's the wrath of the day of the lord okay in in the specific context but uh, but i think it's true that jesus christ delivers us from the wrath to come that's what First Thessalonians 1.10 says. Mm -hmm. So, and also John 3.36, if you believe in him, you have everlasting life. If you don't, the wrath of God abides on you. Yep. So I just see that as very distinct. And that's why perfect love casts out fear. I'm not afraid of God's wrath. Yeah. Because my Savior took it for me. Mm. So maybe it's not a Loctite verse, but it definitely explains like we're not at the center of God's wrath. Um, also, yeah, there are there are those like Tom Stiegel takes the view that he thinks that's just a across the board statement. We're not appointed to wrath. I would agree with that totally. across the board, and that being the case, then that obviously by way of application, not interpreted, but application would mean the wrath of the day of the Lord too, which is the context. And I, I, I would certainly agree. Yeah. So, yeah, That's good awesome. point, Gabe. Awesome. And then another question would be, um, some try to limit maybe the Bema seat judgment in its test to church leaders only, right? Only those in authority because maybe they're held to a higher standard. Um, why? I don't believe that song, but why Why don't you think it's wrong? Um, what is the criterion for receiving a reward or not receiving a reward? Um, if that makes sense. So like, do leaders, are, are leaders held to a different standard? Are they the only ones going to be at the judgment seat of Christ? Like, yeah. how does that dynamic work? Well, I see, I do do believe there's degrees of punishment for the unsaved. Mm. You know, I personally believe that. I mean, Jesus said about Tyre and Sidon, it'd been better. Um, it's going to be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah. Yep. Again, worse than is the degree word again. Now, why is that? Why did he say that? Because they had more truth. They had Jesus Christ doing miracles right in their presence. Mm. So I do think there are degrees of punishment, and I do, do believe there are degrees also, like I mentioned earlier, of reward. I think part of what comes into play is the truth that you've been entrusted with. 
So unto whom much is given, much is required. And James says, be not many teachers, for they shall receive the stricter or greater judgment. Mm -hmm. See, Gabe, you know, when you're a pastor or a teacher, and you're teaching the word of God, you're not only impacting your life, you're impacting Mm -hmm. the lives of many others. So God holds you to a greater standard in that sense. Um, I would say, so the pastor has the opportunity to be doubly blessed or doubly judged. Mm. A doubly blessed, 1 Timothy 5, where he says that we double are worthy honor. of double honor, right. respect and remuneration, mm-hmm. if we are diligent in our service. On the other hand, be not many teachers, for they shall receive the greater judgment. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of goes both ways, and that's why... I count it a great privilege to have been called of the Lord to teach his word and pastor his sheep, but I do so uh, humbly knowing I am what I am by the grace of God, knowing I fail yet in my own life, you know, and uh, and that it's all by his grace that he uses us and to his honor and glory and will even reward us. Mm-hmm. And you see, that's what I think uh, uh, is the major, one of the major problems I have with this whole punitive damages See, I call it in the book, the big stick theology. So every theology kind of has a big stick to kind of get people to not sin and get with it. Um, The Roman Catholics view is the big stick is they have you hanging over hell, held by a thread and they have the scissors. (laughs) And you either fly right or you're in big trouble. Okay, that was my background. Then secondly, then you've got the Arminian view, who their big stick is if you don't remain faithful, you lose your salvation. Yep. So they think that's going to be the motivator for godly living. And that if you teach eternal security, you're teaching the license of sin, which is ironic, because if you listen to Arminian churches, they have a lot of sin issues going on there. <laughs> and then you've got the Calvinistic view who says, well, you know, if you don't remain faithful to the Lord, that as a result that you never had salvation. Yep. That's their big step. And so you can't know for sure you're saved till the day you die, whether you're Arminian or Calvinist, because if you ever quit persevering, either you'll lose it or it's proof you never had it. Uh, unfortunately, in this free grace discussion, their big stick has become punitive damages. Mm. And I and I, I document in the book, or even in the free grace um, the GS, Grace Evangelical Society, over 20 years of the journal, I can only find one, one article on sanctification hmm. relative to your position in Christ. Instead, hmm. it's it's get faithful to get that reward. Get faithful to get those rewards. Hmm. And I'm like, Romans 6, 7, and 8 is totally missing. And I see those as the three most significant chapters in the bible regarding the believer's sanctification yep and in fact here's my theory so why doesn't paul explain it in that detail anywhere else and it's partly because he was never at rome he was at ephesus he was at corinth so he can make reference to it he doesn't have to develop it i think what we're getting to romans 6 7 and 8 is paul's normal teaching on sanctification that he would usually do face-to-face. But that's just the theory. Going back to the question that Gabe asked, though, about limiting the Bema seat to a test for leaders only. You don't hold that view at all. It's a, That's for everyone. Oh, I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but there is some kind of the test that you're talking about with fire for all believers the leadership will held, be held to a stricter standard. So the rewards that they will receive will be of a higher order. And you talked about the uh, double honor in First uh, Timothy 5 as part of the justification. Well, also in First Peter 5, verse 4. Yes, it's there. It talks too. about a crown of glory. Right. And, and the context of that is he's speaking to the elders there, spiritual leaders. We almost Crowned lost Gary. He's back. Yeah, I heard I had to pick up the famous Romans commentary by Zane Hodges. Okay. And, and here it is. The t- subtitle of it is Deliverance from Wrath. I was incensed when I discovered that they work extremely hard and di- diligently to try to make it that the whole book of Romans is about believers being delivered from God's wrath. I've always taught Romans. 
Hmm. And it's uh, it's uh, justification. It's uh, you know uh, condemnation first. I'm sorry, condemnation first, yeah. then justification, and yeah. then sanctification. I've always taught it this way. They twist that all around to be, hey, you are as believers, you need to be careful that you avoid or be delivered from God's wrath. Have you ever heard from any of these uh, other free grace guys and gals, mostly guys, I guess, uh, with regard to your book and have heard, you know, have they responded to your book in some way? Are you aware uh, of any of that? No, they don't. Um, you know, Tom Stiegel's book on even the gospel of the Christ, which, you know, to me is the most, uh, certainly the longest and the most in-depth book ever written on the gospel. Um, the best Wilkin does is he does a review on it, and I don't know that he even read the whole thing, and he points out typos and things like this. He never really addresses um, the context, and what was really funny is he's pointing out typos, and then he makes a typo himself, which was kind of funny. <laughs> but anyhow, um, no, we never usually hear from these guys. And I will say this, before we named some names in the Outer Darkness, we contacted them. And just said, we're going to print this. Do you want to repent first? <laughs> you know, or do or, or, or do we do we have it right? This is your view. And we gave them the opportunity mm. because we just felt in fairness to them because yep. they're brothers in Christ. Well, we I thought Wilkins did do a whole response to this book. Um, I read it. I know he did. It was, it's on it's on their website. I'm sorry, who did? Wilkin. And oh, great. There is a there is a whole response to it, a long one too. I sent it to you, Gary. I yeah. think it was by okay. 20, 25 pages long. It's it's pretty in depth. I didn't agree with it, obviously. But um moving on from that, we should be we should be treating brothers in Christ with with respect and dignity. And I I think that has happened. You can mm -hmm. disagree and disagree agreeably, right? Well, whatever. Um the idea of what that really st strikes me here is the double jeopardy idea. Christ is punished for our sins, and then somehow at the judgment seat of Christ, the believer who has sinned is now supposed to doubly pay again for the sins that they've committed. Uh, Muster, I don't know if you know him or not, yeah. uh, calls this the saints in the hands of an angry God, which I thought was pretty, pretty clever. Um, but Christ propitiated, uh, uh, Gary really wanted to drive this home, satisfied the wrath of God against the sins of the believer. And could you state that just a little bit more clearly so people really understand that the, the total payment was made already? Yeah, and not only was it made, but it was accepted at the it point satisfied of God. Christ. Mm -hmm. See, you know, it's interesting because a discussion I've had with people so while the payment for our sins were made at the cross, when did that payment get accepted, you know, or, or applied to us or what do you want to call it? Mm -hmm. and, and it's funny because I've, I've read all kinds of theology books trying to find anyone who would comment on the timing of the book of change. Ultimately, and Steve Waterhouse in his book, Not by Bread Alone, does make reference to it about the fact that the payment has been made, but it's not until you are willing to accept the payment that God is willing to accept the payment on your behalf by way of the timing of propitiation. So that's why the Bible's clear that he is our propitiation, which is really interesting. It's not that he merely makes it. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Sort of like that illustration that I... I'm trying to remember here, but about the American who committed treason and he was yeah. put out onto a boat and the president of the United States uh, gave him a full pardon and he refused it. So it's Yeah, kind of no, no, thing. I've used that illustration yeah. before. He refused mm -hmm. it and went to the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and there Judge Marshall declared mm -hmm. that pardon is an act of grace. It can be rejected and they hung him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this would this would apply to that as well. Yeah. Oh no, I think it beautifully yeah. illustrates the mm -hmm. whole point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But on the other hand, if you would have accepted the pardon, mm -hmm. then he was forgiven. Mm -hmm. yep. He could not be again held his his sins could not be held against him in that regard. Yeah. You know, so 
So yeah, it's a it's a great point, Scott. The double jeopardy issue is a major issue, I think, for them. Yeah. As we wind down here, um, I was I was reading a found at ges.com or faithalone.org, and um just one verse he brings up as kind of response to it. Second Timothy two twelve. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Mm. Um, does he, does that mean God will deny us at the bema seat? Is there any? What does that denial mean? I guess in response to yeah, that. See, see, I think there's a chiastic construction there. Verse eleven and thirteen, mesh mm. and twelve, uh, in between has two parts to it. And so in that chiastic, chiastic construction, chiastic being boom said, boom. Yeah, first of all. You know, yeah, you want to explain verse that. 11 says, mm-hmm. if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Mm. Verse 12 now says, if we, you want to help me, Gabe? If we, pull up the full verse here. Got it. Endure, not... we shall also reign with him. Mm-hmm. If we Got deny it. him, he'll also deny us. And mm-hmm. then verse 13 corresponds with verse 11. If we are unfaithful or faithless, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Mm. So I understand the second half of verse 12 when it says that he's going to deny us. He's going to deny us some aspect of reward that we could have had mm-hmm. because we denied him. But that's not punishment again. That's a denial of a reward we could have had. And I already said in 1 Corinthians 3, we will suffer loss, loss of a reward we could have had. Mm. But he himself, but he himself shall be saved, and so as through fire. So I'm not saying there aren't consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm saying there isn't punishment. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think we're out of time. Yeah. Let me just chime in here real quick about overcomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, one Go of ahead, the things, and I, and I know this is uh, not your particular area of, but. Uh, uh, a lot of time is spent on Revelation chapter two and three to he who overcomes yes. whatever. I was always struck by the fact that the scripture never says, and you cannot find to he who does not overcome. Oh, yeah. There is mm-hmm. no such thing. No, I would add to that. Isn't it interesting that Revelation takes no time to explain the overcomer? Yeah. Who he is. Why is that? Just because I think John is writing. First John chapter five makes it very clear. Yep. Verses four and five. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. He, he, who is he who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There you go. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, so for so those I who just are... think every believer is an overcomer because we're in Christ, and that's why Tom Stegall points out in John sixteen. And where it says, in this world, you shall suffer tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome Overcome the the world. And because he's overcome the world and we are in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Super conquerors. Yeah, he's the capital O overcomer. We're the small O overcomer. (laughs) A really small. (laughs) Harry's tiny. Can't see it. No, we go. We're on his his, four points. Yeah, my O is three and a half point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure being with you guys. Thanks again for inviting me. I hope it was helpful for people. Oh yeah, yeah. Let me let me just say that being like hearing from you is so many applicable things. So many things that I have questions about that you answer, and. Like I get something from all the authors we interview, but like you specifically, I love talking with you, just hearing what you have to say about it. So I just wanted to thank you for coming on. Yes. Thank you, thank Dennis. You. And you thank can, you for you taking out your time. Tell, tell Word of Life, I'd love to come up and teach sometime if they were interested. <laughs> oh, yeah. Have you have you ever taught for Word of Life at all or done anything? I haven't actually. Okay. No, I haven't. I'll put in the good word then. Okay. <laughs> what about Gary and me? There you go. <laughs> Yeah, um, we can come up as a trail if you like. Tag team preaching. I we like could do a conference. <laughs> tag team conference on free grace. <laughs> I don't know if they go for that anymore, but it'd be yeah. awesome. We want to thank you for appearing on our 
podcast once again. Thank you so much. And especially in this time of transition for you and difficulty with family situation. So we really appreciate it. And maybe we can meet with Tom Stiegel and talk to him about overcomers and get more in depth on that in the future. But yeah, could is I there just any... uh, make one plug for sure, our, our please. website? That's, right? uh, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, um, I pastor Grace and Truth Bible Church in Warner Robins, Georgia. It's middle Georgia. It's about an uh, hour and a half to two hours south of the airport. Mm. And in doing so, um, the website is gracetruthbible.org. It's real simple. Three words together, gracetruthbible.org. And uh, it's not a real developed website yet, but it will soon be. And we also are having our first Middle Georgia Bible Conference next week, um, in which we're teaching on the exceeding riches of God's grace. And uh, there's going to be seven sessions, five Bible teachers. It's just a small conference, but we have to start somewhere. And uh, mm -hmm. looking forward to that. Those messages will be available at our website or YouTube or Sermon Audio after the 12th of February. Nice. That's awesome. Anything else you want to YouTube channel, new books coming out? Anything else you want to talk well, about now? You know, I have over a thousand messages on Duluth Bible Church, you know, on the YouTube mm -hmm. or in Sermon Audio. So there's a lot of messages that could be accessed there. Uh, Grace Gospel Press, you know, there used to be Moody's the name you can trust. Well, I can tell you, I don't I don't trust Moody anymore, but uh, <laughs> Grace Gospel Press is the name I can trust. And yep. by the way, at the website there at Grace Gospel Press, there's a bunch of free downloadable material that people might enjoy, right. as well as there's a bunch of books that are available for sale, or you can order it through Amazon, yep. per se. You know, also dealing with the whole issue of the carnal believer and spirituality. I wrote a little book called I'm Saved But Still Struggling with Sin is Victory mm -hmm. Available. And it's on Romans 6, 7, and 8. Yeah. Just a little booklet. I think probably hardly anything on Kindle or whatever that might be really helpful for believers who want to enjoy second ten salvation. Definitely. Well, thank you, Dennis. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, and uh, we want to bless we want to say, hopefully, um, you write another book and we'll invite you back and maybe we'll talk to Tom. We'll see if we can arrange that. And um, we'll continue to pray for your family that uh, everything goes well there. So God Just bless you. Thought, you know, I'm hoping to write a couple books in the near future. One on, must you repent from your sins to be saved? Ah. So that's a real issue down here. Yeah. I'm also planning to write a book on hyper-dispensationalism wow. that's um, just around the corner. So. Awesome. Well, Thanks we'll so much. Then. All right. Thank, Thank you. you, Dennis. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. God bless you. Thank Bye. you. See you, next, see you next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the book podcast if you liked what you heard and want to support us like follow subscribe on any podcasting platform on youtube on facebook instagram or twitter simply type in at hear the book pod at hear the book pod thank you see you next time